Good morning and welcome to worship at Woodmont Christian Church. It's good to be with you, uh, whether you're uh, watching this pre-recorded service or if you show up in the sanctuary, however, on Zoom, it's always good to be together. You know, just like these uh, few beautiful days we've had lately seem to be reminding us that winter will soon turn into spring. I feel also that the winter the long winter of this uh, coronavirus pandemic that we've been suffering through is now beginning to transition into spring. I mean, the rates of infection are down, the hospitalizations are down, the vaccinations are up and becoming easier to get and more people are getting them. The antibody treatments for the more critical cases are certainly saving more lives. And because of all of this, soon I'm sure we will see the number of deaths also begin to decline. So we have a lot to be thankful for. There's more good news, and that is that our new building is finished. The new children's areas and our new chapel are now completed. And you're welcome to come see them whenever you want. But next Sunday, we are going to hold our worship services in the new chapel, both at 915 and at 1030. In fact, Clay plans to hold worship in the chapel for the next three Sundays during this month of February. And then a week from this coming Wednesday is known as Ash Wednesday. And Ash Wednesday is the beginning of a time of the year known as Lent. Lent is a 40-day period of spiritual preparation for Easter Sunday itself. And as always, we will begin Ash Wednesday with a worship service in the new chapel at six o'clock that day. And also during this period of Lent, uh, we're offering opportunities for people, maybe some who've never been in a small group before or some that have, but would like a special one during Lent. But we're, we're having special groups for six weeks during Lent uh, that you will meet online in Zoom. And if you look in the church paper or if you look on our website and you will see different times during the week when these groups will be offered. And if you would like to be a part of them, all you need to do is to sign up on the website or you can contact Anne-Marie Farmer who is coordinating this special effort. Once again, uh, Clay asked me to preach and he said he wanted me to continue uh, in his series of sermons on morality, meaning, and the Ten Commandments. You know, for 50 years, I had complete freedom of the pulpit but I'm now getting used to the new way that things are. So I began thinking about this word morality and what is moral and what is not and who is moral and, and who is not and what makes a person moral or not. You know, morality is one of those words we use all the time, but like so many, I call them God talk words like salvation and grace. We use them all the time, but do we really understand what they mean? As a young person growing up in the church or in my family, uh, I thought of morality uh, as meaning being good rather than bad, living in the right way rather than the wrong way, living in a way that is pleasing to God. As a child, 
That meant being good, pleasing God would be brushing my teeth every day, saying my prayers at night, obeying my parents, not stealing anything, never telling a lie, never cheating in anything, working hard, and, and so on. As a Boy Scout, it meant being trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, kind, obedient, cheerful, thrifty, brave, clean, and reverent. As a young Christian in the church, it meant such things as going to church regularly. Regularly used to mean every Sunday and sometimes twice a Sunday. It meant saying my prayers, reading my Bible, and always helping others. Now, I must admit that I was off to a pretty good start as a young person. I was fortunate to be reared in a moral family. But you know, as we grow older, and this continues all through life, even right up until we die, we continue to refine our understandings of the things that we are taught. And we continue to refine, in this case, our understanding of morality. So as we think about what does it mean to be moral or are you a moral person, we have to say, what does morality mean? And how is it reflected in the way that we live every day? Recently, Clay helped me in my continued refining of morality when he recommended this book that he's recommended to all of you, a book entitled Morality, written by a Jewish rabbi named Jonathan Sachs. And Clay's always got the uh, church staff reading and discussing books. And, and right now in our Wednesday staff meetings, we're discussing this book. And I certainly uh, would second Clay's idea that, that you read this book as well. It certainly has a lot to offer and gives a lot of insight and understanding into where our world, our nation, our society uh, is today. But Rabbi Sachs gives a very clear and specific understanding of what morality means. He says it's not about keeping laws, but it's about how you treat others. And it's not just about loving God, but it's about loving other people as well. In his own words, I quote from the book, morality at its core is about strengthening the bonds between us, helping others, engaging in reciprocal altruism, and understanding the demands of group loyalty. It is, he goes on to say, the ability to step back and see oneself from the outside as capable of understanding that we have duties, obligations, and responsibilities to others. Morality is the ability to care for others. And again, he says, morality is born when I focus on you, not me, when I discover that you too have emotions, desires, aspirations, and fears. He says, I learned this by being present to you and by allowing you to be present to me. I learned to be moral when I developed the capacity to put myself in your place. And that is a skill that I only learn by engaging with you face to face 
or side by side. And that statement in itself is uh, uh, an example to why social media today is such a threat to morality because it replaces that face-to-face experience or side-by-side experience by communicating over some media uh, tube or screen. To me, it's interesting how Rabbi Sachs repeats the same advice that another Jewish rabbi taught 2,000 years ago. The very heart of Jesus' message, as we find it in the scriptures, is living for others and not just yourself. Let's take a quick trip through the life of Jesus and his teachings as we find it in the New Testament. We are told when Jesus first stood up to speak in public in the temple, he chose to read from the prophet Isaiah and the passage he read said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed at liberty. Then when Jesus began his public ministry, preaching what we know as the Sermon on the Mount, he said, you've heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. In everything, Jesus said, do unto others as you would want them to do unto you. Later, when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He said, you shall love the Lord your heart with all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Another time, Jesus said, if anyone would be my disciple, if anybody wants to follow me, let that person deny self and take up the cross and follow me. Again, the emphasis was not on self, but on others. Deny self means to quit worrying about yourself. Take up the cross means to live for others, to serve others, to help others. And even if you go back into the Old Testament to the Ten Commandments, which is the beginning of our Judeo-Christian ideas of morality, you can see that it's always been about others. The first four commandments talk about our relationship with God. The next six commandments talk about our relationship with others. One of the last things that Jesus ever said to his disciples the night before he was crucified, he said, love one another just as I have loved you. Love one another. By this will everyone know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. After Jesus had died and been resurrected and ascended to heaven years later, decades later, uh, when his followers tried to convey to people then what was the heart of the message of Jesus, they said the same basic theme over and over again in many different ways. Paul, for example, in his letter to the Philippians says, do nothing from selfishness or conceit, but in humility, think of others as being better than you are. Think about that one. 
How many of us have ever thought of other people as better than we are? And then in one of my favorite passages, John writes, let us love one another because love is from God. And those who love are born of God and know God. Those who do not love do not know God for God is love. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his neighbor, he is a liar. For he who does not love his neighbor whom he has seen cannot possibly love God whom he has not seen. So I share all of these passages of scripture and I could share many, many more like them, but I share them because I want to make it perfectly clear that what it means to follow Jesus, to please God, to be a moral person is to live for others and not just selfishly for yourself. Think about morality a moment. If morality, being a good person, means knowing the difference between right and wrong and choosing to do what is right, whose definition of right or wrong do you follow? If you follow human understandings, you'll get confused because human values differ from culture to culture and they also change from generation to generation. Even in our own lifetime, we have seen certain basic moral values change according to human thought. But what we really need is a value system that is eternal and unchanging, the same in every generation and in every place. And that can only mean one thing, God. For God alone is eternal and unchanging. And thus God's ideas about what's right and what's wrong, what's moral and what's not, what's ethical, is eternal and unchanging because it's based on God himself and the very nature of God. Furthermore, we know, as the Bible tells us again, that God is love. And by that, we mean agape kind of love. Love which puts other people first. And so God's measure of morality is all about agape love. God sets the moral standard. And so I would say it's impossible to even consider morality without God. And God's moral standard is innate. I mean, in every human being, when we are created, God's seed of morality is planted within us. And that's what it means in Genesis when it says that we were created in the image of God. We were created in the image of love, goodness, truth, righteousness, justice, morality. So think about this standard of morality, according to Rabbi Sachs and certainly according to Jesus. What does this standard of morality say about our lives in this 21st century? Instead of God's way, we choose to follow our own way. And instead of living for others, our culture says, take care of yourself. Take care of number one. Look out for number one. If you don't take care of yourself, who's, who else is going to do it? Further, we go down that path. 
and we have for the last 200 years, the more miserable we have become. We've chosen consumerism, materialism, and politics over a moral basis for society. And so people today are increasingly discouraged, distressed, stressed and struggling and lonely, more so than ever before. And this has led to the problem of drugs, which a lot of people use to try and escape their loneliness and their meaninglessness in life. This has increased the rates of divorce and suicide, depression, addiction. These things are becoming more rampant today than the coronavirus itself. Being selfish, being only concerned with ourselves rather than others has destroyed so many families, so many marriages. We all know what it's done to politics today. Just look at Washington. It's threatened the very democratic basis on which this great nation was established. In his book, Rabbi Sachs makes reference to Alexis the Talkful, who visited America back in 1835. And he wrote an account of what he saw in this country. He called it democracy in America. And in that book, he pointed out the great danger the failure, the single greatest danger, he said, to democratic freedom in the long run. He wrote, people would simply cease to interest themselves in the welfare of others. And they would leave that responsibility to the state, which would grow even larger until it becomes a kind of benign tyranny. Think about that in light of what's happening in our country today. Now, it's been interesting to me that at the same time I've been reading Rabbi Sachs' book, I've also been reading a book by America's favorite Buddhist monk, Thich Nhat Hanh. And if you learn anything about Buddhism, it teaches you how to look deeper into everything, every moment, every person, every object, including looking deeper into yourself, your own life, and into others. Thich Nhat Hanh even talks about what Jesus said about loving your neighbors, loving even your enemies. Han says, we first need to look into ourselves deeply and ask ourselves, what is it that really brings us meaning, peace, joy, and happiness in life? Then he said, we need to look deeply into others. Others meaning those we know and love, as well as those that we don't know that well, including those we think of as our enemies, people we dislike very much. Look deeply into them and their lives. If we do this, he calls it mindfulness or mindful thinking or meditation, we realize that others, including our enemies, are seeking the basic same things in life that we're seeking. Peace, joy, love, happiness. And then if we were to go even further and to pray for these other people, those we love, those we don't know that well, even our enemies, that they might be peaceful, happy, and loved. Maybe even pray for them that they be free from injury, that they live in safety, 
May they be free from anger, disturbance, fear, worry, anxiety. Even go so far as to pray that they would be surrounded with the energy of love. And if we do that, we will realize that it takes us a long way down the path into what Jesus meant when he said, love your enemies. Those thoughts and prayers are actually a way of loving our enemies. When you realize that the person you consider to be your enemy is also suffering from the same worries and fears and anxieties that you struggle with, you just might find yourself feeling more compassion for them. And before long, this idea of enemy begins to vanish and it becomes replaced with someone else who like you is suffering and struggling, who needs and wants love and compassion. Now, I don't know if you can wrap your mind around all that, which I just shared, but if you can, even a little bit, you know how amazing it is that it can transform your life, your feelings, and eventually transform the world around you. So isn't it interesting that 2,000 years later, a Jewish rabbi and a Buddhist monk are teaching the same lessons about morality that Jesus taught 2,000 years ago? And in light of that, and in light of our world's moral status today, I'd like to close with a paragraph that I found in a book called Essential Writings. It says, our true home is not in the safety of a particular belief or ideology, nor is our safety to be found in a bank account, a house, a car, a family, or employment. But our true home, our true safety in life is the solidarity and freedom of our heart and our mind cultivated in the context of a caring community. For the last 200 years, we have been cultivating individualism and separateness to a maximum degree. And that has brought around so much hostility and suffering in our society today. Now we have to find new ways of living and acting together. Amen.